we haven't got a running order because we've been disorganized. That's my fault. Um, Andrew, do you strongly want to go first? Do you mind if I do? What are your thoughts? I, I'm very happy for you to kick it off, Diane, and then I'll, uh, okay, I'll chip in. And you can finalize it. That's perfect. Right. So many things to discuss. But this is what I want to say in the first instance. I think what we've really shown in the past two days is that we can do this. We can talk to each other. Mm. We can understand one another. We can communicate. And this is no small thing. I have run many interdisciplinary events across my career. And quite often you find that there's actually no common questions, no common language, no common set of ideas. That hasn't been the experience here. My sense is that what's really striking is that actually in separate ways, we've all been working on similar kinds of questions and similar kinds of concerns and problems. And one of those that really sprang to mind and was beautifully highlighted by today's extraordinary papers is the extent to which this whole area of, I'm just gonna condense it in the word magic, uh, has been occluded and forgotten and deeply buried in every sense and even deliberately excluded. Um, it was striking that the National Trust deliberately wanted not to do witchcraft, deliberately wanted not to record the history of people who are collecting witches' bottles and magical artifacts and so on, and wanted to give that job to somebody else as if saying that the nation excluded it, as if saying that it was antithetical to proper truth-telling history. And yet what everyone's also been preoccupied with, again, in a diversity of ways, is that if we don't attend to these issues, then it's as though the very act of trying to suppress or repress them produces as an epiphenomenon the bubbling up of pretty scary forces um, of whom the invasive right-wingers at Wayland Smithy were probably the most frequently cited example. But we could also talk about the way academic historians working on witchcraft have often not wanted to talk about the possibility of belief on either side. The word belief is quite distancing. If we talk about beliefs, we imply we don't have them. Other people have those ideas. If we don't do that work, if we don't discuss odd witches, strange witches, the result is actually that many people who are less responsible will create histories that are less factual and in a way less authentic than those we could co-create with them. And that might be okay if those histories were flagged as fiction, but it becomes problematic when they're not flagged as fiction. It becomes problematic when there's, for example, in my own work, a naive insistence that in the past goddess worshipping witches exercised a wonderful matriarchy consisting entirely of benevolent mid midwifery and were persecuted by their male Christian neighbors. And that's a lovely story, but it's not fact. And there's a simple sort of way in which we need to contest some of the non-fact in order to establish the complexity and the intractability and the difficulty of the facts with which we work. 
And I think that's that work is clearly being done by all of us in a huge variety of ways. Um, and it's, it's really striking to see people wrestling with another overall issue. And this is really the second big theme that I drew from the presentations that I've so enjoyed over the past two days. And that is how do people connect with the past? What kinds of connections can be formed? It could be by vast human universals like birth and death. And we've heard a variety of ways in which those connections can happen. It could be through the movement of those large universals through story. And the stories can be quite particular. We can talk about the fact that some constants move through those stories, the figure of the witch, the figure of the fairy or otherworldly being, the figure of various artifacts like stones, which have recurred constantly throughout the presentations, and tombs, ditto. And there are also some really huge variables, and all of us are trying to take account of those. And I've heard many of you talk about regional variations, identifying as a northerner, um, national variations. What difference does it make if you're Welsh or from Northern Ireland or from the Republic? What is Englishness in that the norm, the dominant is always less visible? What other kinds of ethnicities make up the multicultural layer that people now identify as part of Englishness? What difference does class make? What difference do educational levels make? And we could also talk about the many theoretical differences between us, the distinction between the fashion for syncretism that dominated this kind of work basically in the late 19th century with, with uh, Fraser and then Jung, um, and persisted really through the late 1950s with people like Robert Graves and even the poet Ted Hughes, versus the much more careful, you could even say scrupulous kind of work that people want to do now. Um, and, and additionally, the very act of curating, whether we're curate, curating objects or stories, words or things, can itself be highly problematic for some identities in relation to a narrative about imperialism, a narrative about an authenticity that insists loudly and vehemently that things belong to us because we paid for them. Um, and this kind of visible problem, which I think is dogging most museum collections now, I know it's a big deal at the Pitt Rivers in Oxford, um, and then the politics within the British Isles, the possible English repudiation of magic as something that people in the Celtic fringes believe in or do, um, and the extent to which all those kinds of problems coalesce around questions that dominate our own research. What are we allowed to look into? What can we get the money to look into? What can we get published when we're finished? those kinds of access issues and how those relate. So you'll have gathered that I have more questions than answers. And I think that's actually the perfect outcome from a fantastic event like this one. I'm going to take those questions away. I'm going to get in touch with all of you. And I'm really excited to converse more with every single person here. Thank you. <laughs>
I think I'd just like to to echo what Diane said. I think it's been a real sort of meeting of minds between um, you know the the heritage participants and and those from academia. And I think it really has shown that there is more than just a dialogue. It's actually a meeting of minds in terms of the way that we we take this forward. I mean, I think from a heritage perspective, we've been coming at this in terms of thinking. How do we energize and and engage more of our visitors with our sites? How do we how do how do we you know sort of get their their interest in coming to visit us? And you know we want to we want to be authentic. We we we, we pride ourselves in authenticity. But what is the what is authentic? Is you know we're we're making us think again about what's authentic. And as Susan was saying about her how she would rethink a panel that she did 15 years 13 14 years ago. Um, you know our ideas about what what we value, the different perspectives that we value, and how we uh, you know is do we prioritise one mode of thought over another? I think that's changing, and and I think particularly it links with one of our ideas with, which we use for our conservation plans. We talk about the different types of value that things have. So things have um, historical value, but we also talk about our sites having communal value. That's their value to the people who live in, around them and how they react or respond to those sites and in one way that they do that of course is through the myths legends and folklore that they associate with those sites and i think for too long we've maybe not been valuing that communal value enough and not not really thinking about how local people relate relate to the sites that they have in their vicinity and the stories that they tell about them and the meanings that they have for them so i think you know this this idea of bringing in these different and think about it in the same way that we now think about oral history a lot and the sort of connections that individuals have with their sites. Um, and I think, you know, something that, that Mary said about the, the, the myths and legends map and the actual, the engagement that we had with that and the fact that going from something that was seen initially possibly as something just to help promote our myths and legends theme, it's become a, something which is valued as a resource by academics and by uh, community researchers as well as being something which is participatory and I'm sure that we would be very glad to have been able to continue having that as an active resource people could add to if it wasn't for the fact that you know the, the logistics of actually maintaining that but it's still being left there as a resource now which is great so in general I just think you know this is something that we want to continue in a conversation and see how we can use this opportunity to bring some of these stories from the academic sphere to bear on our sites so that we can actually help tell more interesting stories at them. I think I'll, I'll open it up to the floor now for anyone who's got anything to contribute. Brilliant. Thanks, Andrew. I'm, I'm going to go straight to Mary, if that's uh, if that's if that's possible for um, what I think is a really meaty and uh, interesting question. OK, um, I hope this isn't too problematic a question, but I think it's always good to ask ourselves about these things frequently, especially as some heritage people, academics, whatever. Uh, and that's in response to Diane's uh, excellent comments in opening this roundtable. Might the historic suppression of magic at heritage sites, the way it's been suppressed, maybe suggest a kind of moral, moral guardianship role that heritage organisations and academics as well have kind of imagined themselves as taking um, when it comes to managing um, stories associated with, with um, significant sites? And then I guess like more problematically potentially are the questions that we are actually asking about managing folklore at certain sites such as Wayland Smithy in order to avoid problematic iterations of folklore cropping up in the gaps. Are those kinds of questions also maybe falling into the same tendencies? 
that we identify in, in those historic kind of suppression magical narratives at sites. Um, Really interesting. I think I should probably leave someone from the heritage side to answer the first part of your question, Mary. And, and I think there, there, there is no clean or neat way to avoid the large questions that you raise. It's true that um, it's impossible to engage with folklore and particularly the folklore of the past without risking sounding um, problematic in a huge range of ways. Um, one way is the, the, the sort of intrinsic post-enlightenment way that we talk about the past. And I spoke briefly in my comments about the use of the word belief. And I'm thinking now of that fantastic thing Neil Price says in his new book about the Vikings. Actually, the Vikings didn't have beliefs, they had knowledge. You don't think of your own beliefs as beliefs like that, you think of them as knowledge. And so the very fact that we sort of distance ourselves from you know, which beliefs, fairy beliefs, they're all over here, aren't they? And we're here, rational, sensible. There's always a creepily superior aspect that intrinsically places the researcher above the thing studied. And it's sort of difficult to escape it. Yeah, I totally see that. Andrew, did you want to comment on the other half of Mary's question, just because it was about heritage? and Yeah, about the idea of moral guardianship and the idea of sort of being the superior sort of guardian overseeing what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. I, I suppose in the sense that we always have to be mindful when we're writing our panels in, in terms of trying to come down, people assume that what we're writing is the official narrative on the site because it's, you know, we're, 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 we're telling it as it is. Um, there's always different perspectives, aren't there? And on, in five, when you've got 400 or, or sorry, 200 words or 100 words or whatever it is to, to write something, then actually being able to convey the complexity and nuances of, the, of an argument is, is often quite difficult. And you have to, you know, hedge your bets with words like probably and things like that. But um, in terms of, I, I think we are changing in the way that we, the way that we would view, I mean, I, I think traditionally we have had this very much this, this conception of giving the, the rational archaeological, um, you know, sort of narrative which doesn't have space for 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 these sort of um, more sort of uh, folklorist beliefs or whatever. I I, I think that's changing, but it, it's a sense it's a sense of the way that we we deal with our interpretation is that things move slowly because we only we only install so many panels in a in a given year. So you know it, it may be that when when you visit a particular site you don't notice the change straight away, but. Um, I, I mean, I have no idea whether whether we would, as Susan suggested, return to where committee and and, re and review panel there. I mean, it, 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 would, it would seem something that may well be appropriate, but when would when would that, that site come up for having a new panel put onto it? So, I mean, we can change our web content, and we have, and we've got things like the the myths and legends map now, which is up there. And I, and I think in the way that we have started editing some of our online content to reflect things like the the impact transatlantic slavery and we're, we're we're going through to some of our site panels to make sure that they do reflect um the, you know the, the current thoughts in that area which may be different than when the when that text was originally written i think 
similarly in this area, there'd be no reason why we shouldn't edit some of our our panel text, uh, our online content to to reflect these different perspectives if they're not currently present. Just to jump in, I mean, I think you know panels are important, but I, I suspect most people don't really read them anyway. So <laughs> I, I wonder whether there's a there's a there's probably a lot more we can be done that can be done uh, through our education um, uh, programs, but also through kind of projects that co-create and involve other people in what is it that's important about this site um, you know whether that's local people whether that's particular interest groups whether that's uh, particular communities that we want to reach out to I think co-creation is is something we we have to really take seriously particularly and you know when we're thinking about larger projects I'm sure Sally's thinking about lots of ways of engaging people in Snow's Hill but uh, yeah in, to my mind I think in the past a lot of heritage interpretation and management has been done in a very closed insular way and and that's got to change and we have to look out a lot more yeah, it's oh, just to come in as well. Oh, sorry. Oh, yeah. I think, I mean, some of just going back to the sort of original question, I think there's something here about the history of the concept of a notion of heritage itself and how it was formulated in the 19th century and conservation as well. And, you know, the National Trust was actually set up to provide open spaces for people not to, um, like Tavia Hill and, and, um, her co-founders not really thinking about sort of houses and collections and some of that was quite ad hoc how that came to be um, and I suppose that then the kind of idea about preserving uh, things in aspic um, you know some of that came from some of the those 19th century sort of heritage ideas um, so you know this kind of bringing in of belief and I suppose in more intangible ideas is is something that was I think there is something around kind of ideas about morality and and guardianship of what you know what heritage is and can be um but also because it's very it can be very problematic um as we know and you know and andrew was just alluding to this uh you know i mean you can as the national trust knows quite well at the moment um if you start adding multiple layers to interpretation you you do get backlash and it can be really, really difficult to engage with. So something very practical about this and how an organization weathers those attacks. Um, but I think that um, there's certainly lots of opportunities for multiple narratives such as these in the digital space. And perhaps thinking about moving away from on-site interpretation where you just can't present everything all at once, it's impossible. And thinking about how we use digital space, both in terms of access, in terms of what Susan was talking about, co-creation, co-curation, crowdsourcing, which clearly um, English Heritage have done brilliantly well with this map. And it's something we really want to look at. It's something we're doing at the moment we've been doing at Kedleston Hall and the Eastern um, Museum there and not so much crowdsourcing but going out to source communities um, that's really important especially when you're dealing with sort of non-western areas but uh, collections and, and places but also that can be really important for local collections and local places that na the nature of the landscape so I mean there's all sorts of different approaches but I definitely think that we need to inhabit digital spaces more effectively. Fantastic. And Juliet, you were about to come in. Over to you. It's a related question, and that is the institutions that look after these, these things and the communication or non-communication between them. I think Jenny uh, noted something that when we talk about the British Isles, it kind of includes Ireland. 
um, and includes Ireland as if somehow it's part of a, something, a geographical unity or part of a cultural unity that it isn't. Celts is, 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 a, similar, is a similar sort of thing. Um, and again, it, it's just something that I think, and Diane mentioned that, you know, the different perspectives from Wales, for example, Cadu does things very, very, very differently. And as we are being recorded, I think I will just leave it at that. Um, and, you know, what kind of, are, are there possibilities for the different institutions to communicate with, with, with one another? And clearly, I think English Heritage and the National Trust seem to be doing so. Um, and unfortunately, hopefully, Scotland, Scotland will as well, even though um, Stefan won't be able to sort of join us uh, literally or virtually. So it's just kind of throwing something out, I'm afraid, kind of another possible problem in that with all of the problems of interpretation, there's also a problem of communication as well. Very much so. Um, any, uh, any colleagues like to like to respond to that immediate immediate point? Susan, you've unmuted yourself, which is a good sign. <laughs> I was I was actually just going to um, bring in um, Andrew's point in the chat, which is about um, the the sites that are not looked after by heritage organisations. Um, I know Matt this morning mentioned about acquisition of properties, but it's actually something that happens very rarely, at least for our organisation, and, and about how we, we kind of map and record the, the hidden sites as they were. Um, I'm looking, oh, there, there's Andrew on my screen. Um, I just thought that was a really interesting point about how how any funding can be found for that and any kind of, you know, any of, of the skills of, of all of the people in the room can be brought to kind of highlight those places as well. But just to say that, I mean, obviously heritage organisations do talk to each other an awful lot, but we are also really small and really underfunded and really pressed for time. So in a way, fora like this, where we can actually get together with people across different organisations and boards is exactly what, the, you know, the purpose of, of that, that sort of event. So, yeah, sorry. Well, Susan, that's brilliant. You can write that in the feedback in big capital letters. Our funders will be delighted to have heard that. Um, uh, Diane, you're about to come in. Yeah, I just wanted to say, indeed, it's actually really intriguing that yesterday uh, we heard from Lisa Tallis about some sites that I would adore to visit. I would have bitten the hand off anyone who wanted to take me to an unknown Welsh witch's cottage, but I didn't even know it was there. Um, so, I mean, in a way that also applies to our ability to get to know one another, to assimilate one another's work, to discover and rediscover all kinds of aspects of what we collectively do that we haven't fully known about or fully integrated into our own approaches. And I think in that sense, it's really important that events like this continue to happen because it's in this way that we can make progress with those knotty, difficult questions that all of us are trying to address. So that's my last word. Yeah. I, I, I was just going to add that, you know, in a sense, the way that the sites in the English Heritage Collection were, were assembled, very much as, as Sally was saying with the National Trust sites, it was by people who were not thinking about these sort of things and these sort of ideas. They were They were very much thinking along the lines of, classical categories of archaeological sites and and and, and art, artistic and architectural features that they valued and that was why those sites were selected possibly why that some of these other sites such as those that lisa mentioned are not in the historic collect in, in 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 the english heritage or the national trust collection because those things were not valued at that time and maybe it, it is a, a reason for for what 
Matt said this morning, that we need to sort of vary and widen the, the, the range of sites that we consider as part of our national collection. And it, it's a good uh, marker for that, as, as well as some of the, the industrial and whatever sites that he mentioned. There are these types of sites as well. Brilliant. Well, I think um, after two days of, of really, um, of really wide-ranging, um, intense, exciting, intriguing, and uh, thoroughly rewarding conversation, um, I think we should draw it to a close there. Um, in terms of what happens next, I'll, I'll pass to Diane in a second, but in terms of the immediate things that happen next, um, uh, we have recorded the, um, uh, the presentation, so they will be edited down into a podcast form. Um, all of the contributors, you will have a series of exciting pieces of paperwork to fill in uh, to ensure that we can release these, um, these items. Um, the chat, we will, we will make sure that we save the chat so that there's a record of our conversations uh, uh, today. But Diane, I just pass over to you for sort of closing words. Well, I'd like to close by thanking everybody involved, particularly the presenters, because I think we've had an absolutely brilliant series of presentations that were clearly both thought through and well worked out for presentation over Zoom. Um, it was just terrific when I sent out that first email and you all agreed to be involved still. Um, really, really grateful to all of you for that. Second thing to say is I will be getting in touch with all of you about the probability of uh, publishing your work in the special issue of a journal. I just need to liaise with the journal editor about the timetable on that so that I can communicate with you in a more informed way than I'm able to at present. But I hope that um, some of you have already said that you are willing to make your pieces available. Um, I'm very grateful for that. If anyone, um, yeah, we can discuss it over email, so I don't think I'll go on and on about it now. I'll just say it's happening. Um, and in the meantime, um, I would love to be in touch with all of you individually because I have so many follow-up questions for everybody um, regarding the fantastic and incredibly exciting material you all presented. So thank you once more. Um, it's been in every way a blast. Thank you.